Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. There was a time I thought I'd never be able to buy my own house. I had almost accepted my fate as a lifelong renter. But then, just as we went into lockdown, I went sale agreed on a little house in a big estate with a wonky door, a plumbing problem and my very own garden shed. I have no idea if it was good timing or not. Everyone has an opinion when you buy your first property, especially if you're over the age of 45, or, as my mother used to say, you're no spring chicken. Most of the advice I got was to wait until the predicted post-Covid property crash. But I didn't. I had waited long enough. Unlike with other moves, I couldn't declutter because the charity shops were closed, so I packed up our far too many belongings and said goodbye to renting. Forever. I rented my first flat at age 19. It was a kip in Renola. The elderly male landlord used to collect the weekly rent from the mantelpiece. There was no privacy and even less insulation. The bathroom was a Baltic prefab. Which reminds me of another dank flat in Rathmines, but there I had a painting party. Nothing like a group of theatre makers to transform a gloomy gaff into a hippie den. And then there was the house share with the couple, who rowed and made up and rowed again, and I couldn't tell you which was noisier. There was the housemate doing his thesis on horror films. Jack Nicholson and his mighty axe still haunt my dreams. And the flat with the mice infestation. But when I complained, the property owner cheerfully suggested I bait the rodents with spicy Spanish sausage. Instead, I got a cat. And the insomniac grass cutter in the flat below, mowing the lawn at three in the morning. And the Romeo, who had so many lovers that the rest of us in the house felt like nuns and monks in comparison. Being self-employed and working in the arts, it was never going to be easy to get a mortgage. So I made a vow. If I had to rent, I would rent the quirkiest, most unusual homes I could. The types of places I could never afford to buy. So along came the small room in a beautiful apartment with a sea glimpse. I shared with a flamboyantly wonderful flatmate who smoked far too much of everything and once threw a half-naked man over our balcony when she realised he was up to no good. And then there were the two of us in our bijou Sandy Mount home where we lived and loved for years, walking the beach and making lifelong friends or, as I call them still, my honorary aunties. Our two homes abroad, a modern apartment in Singapore which we brought our newborn baby home to and another in the city of Baku, with five flights of stairs and an ancient Russian lift that broke down weekly. Full of charm, but with a toddler and pregnant again, not so practical. Back in Ireland, and we lived in a manor. Yes, an actual manor. An old listed house where we threw large, colourful birthday parties for our two children. I was almost embarrassed when people exclaimed how beautiful it was. Oh, we're only renting, I'd say in case anyone thought I'd got notions. Throughout all of this, my friends were paying their mortgages. I was paying other people's mortgages, or funding their skiing holidays, who knows. 
I noticed two things. My rent was always higher than my friends' mortgages and there is a huge difference between renting here and abroad. In my experience, you're treated as a client abroad. You pay good money, you get good accommodation. Respect on both sides. Here, you pay good money, but it's almost as if they don't actually want you to live there. Could you hover, perhaps? It doesn't feel respectful here. It feels judgmental. It feels like you're a second-class citizen. And semantics has something to do with it. I'd love to get rid of the antiquated terms landlord and landlady. I've come across no lords and only two ladies in my renting years. Aren't they just house owners with an extra property or several? My two kids are now teens and it's just the three of us, plus our bonkers dog. This is my daughter's fifth move and my son's third. It's my 15th and I'm only counting properties I've lived in for over a year. Three flats, five apartments, six houses. They have all been homes. But this one, the 15th, this is the first I can call our actual house. I still have bubble-wrapped pictures to put up on the walls. There are even more books to go on the shelves. There are bags of clothes ready for the charity shops. The front door is still wonky and in desperate need of a lick of paint. Pink or red? I can't decide. But I'm on a high. Goodbye renting. Hello house. Hello new home. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs all night long. A tectonic plate is rather like a dog. Neither have any sense of their own size until confronted by a larger version of themselves. The NASCAR plate to the west of Chile is much smaller than the continent-sized South American plate under which it is subducted, a process which happens at the rate of 80 centimetres a year, a sprint in tectonic terms. This tension creates enormous stresses, manifesting in the world's most powerful earthquakes. Though devastating and deforming to the landscape of this Andean region, earthquakes bring life to the planet. Without them, there would be no mountains and valleys, no change in climate, and no vital geothermal release from the core. And perhaps none of this information would have come looking for me had I not become a frequent visitor to Chile, quite unexpectedly, some 25 years ago. It was in the mid-90s that my mother and her husband decided to move from Europe to an area just south of Santiago. He is a Frenchman who spent the first 20 years of his life in Spain and she, a Polish-born refugee whose post-war life had been anchored in London. Carlos, my stepfather, had worked for a building company that owned factories in Chile. Periodically, he came to inspect them. Chile reminded him of his childhood in Spain. A man possessed of Gallic logic and Latin romance in equal measure declared that when he retired, he wanted to live in Chile. 
a seductive climate that blossomed when the Northern Hemisphere was at its darkest and a state of newfound democracy made this South American destination irresistible to them, a golden life that would have been unaffordable for them in Europe. For my mother, Chile was a coincidence, the kind that bears a striking resemblance to irony. It was to Chile that she'd been en route as a child with my grandmother in 1947. My grandmother, Krisha, had decided that Poland was still too dangerous for Jews. London was merely a transit stop. But fate would have it that she met someone, married him, and life began afresh in London. Chile became a footnote to their story until it reappeared unwittingly half a century later. What would have become of our family if my mother had continued her passage? It's hard to fathom what almost 20 years of the Pinochet dictatorship would have done to their faith in mankind after Hitler had made clear how he had valued them six million times. There is, of course, a notable Irish connection to the foundation of modern Chile. The liberator was half Spanish, half Irish. Bernardo O'Higgins, a curious pronunciation of the name O'Higgins, is credited with driving the Spanish out of Chile in the early 19th century and is regarded as the first modern leader of the post-colonialist state. There is a bust of Bernardo on a plinth in the park in Merrion Square. Kevin O'Higgins, the eminent High Court judge, is a direct descendant. A brand new Irish embassy hopes to build trade links, although there are fewer than 2,000 Irish people currently living there. Chile is as long as America is wide, a country of lakes, volcanoes and glaciers in the south, and 1,800 kilometres of Atacama Desert, the world's driest, in the north. Officially, it has 14 climatic zones. Economically, Chile has grown rich by South American standards, exporting large quantities of copper and bauxite, the ore that produces aluminium, to China at the height of its economic expansion. With rapid wealth came corruption and over-privatisation, two major impediments to the aspirations of a fair society. Recent riots have exposed a tipping point, but thankfully, democracy has held firm and the politicians seem to be listening. I try to visit Chile once a year during our winter and their summer. On the 27th of February 2010, at 3.31am, my delicious deep slumber was violently interrupted. The cabana on the hill where guests stay, behind the main house, was shaking as if a giant had picked up a piggy bank and was trying to force the coins out of the slot. The noise sounded like a jet taking off, but in every direction. The earthquake lasted for two and a half minutes, interminably long for a tremor, one of the most powerful ever recorded. I lay in bed and did not move. This was not a display of English reserve. No, this was a lack of instinct and an abundance of stupidity. Chileans know to get out of buildings as fast as possible. I finally got up and out. There was remarkably little damage. Half a metre of water has slopped out of the pool. Some furniture had been tossed around inside the house. And I remember the grandfather clock leaning at a steep angle in the living room. Chile has a strict building code and the modern architecture comfortably withstands such geological forces. 
In Santiago, a city of six million people, only ten were killed. A certain tragedy, but dwarfed by what has been seen in other countries prone to earthquakes. Not a single pane of glass was dislodged from any of the skyscrapers. The aftershocks continued long after, but life resumed as before within a few weeks. For Monica, my mother, and Carlos, Chile has offered them a glorious third age. Carlos has lived the retirement of his dreams, and, finally for Monica, Chile became the safe haven that was hoped for many moons ago. And for me, it has shown me a world far beyond the local noise of Europe, where, astonishingly, the disaster of 80 years ago does not look impossible to revisit. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me dio dos luceros que cuando los abro Perfecto distingo lo negro del blanco y en el alto cielo su fondo. Growing up in Neary, just inside the North of Ireland border, we were subject to fairly hard food rationing during the Second World War and for some years afterwards. This rationing extended right across the United Kingdom, which of course included the six counties of the North and it covered such items as butter, sugar, tea, and most other groceries. But what concerned me most as a young wee fella, not yet in his teenage years, was the strict rationing on sweets. Each of us children in our large family had his or her own sweetie coupons, which we would deposit in P.D. Loughran's sweetie shop in nearby Queen Street, which was later renamed Dominic Street. Having got our pocket money on the Saturday, Next morning, on our way to Mass in the local Dominican church, we'd call into Petey's shop to buy our weekly ration of sweets. I usually choose Dolly Mixtures, Bullseye and Spangles. Now, Pete, being a good Catholic, always reminded us to keep the fast and not to eat the sweets until after the Mass, which, of course, we dutifully obeyed. The rationing was strictly enforced and Petey had no latitude whatsoever to give us any more than our coupons clearly allowed us. During those war rationing years, my mummy had an informal smuggling arrangement with her elderly aunt Mary Ann, who lived in the village of Black Lion in County Cavan, on the Free State side of the border. Auntie Mary Ann, carrying the shopping, mostly butter and sugar as requested by my mummy, would cross a few hundred yards over to the village of Belcoo in County Fermanagh, always with a friendly wave and hello to our British Custom House men friends on the bridge, before posting the smuggled shopping to us in Newry. But the routine changed dramatically on my 10th birthday when I received the magnificent present of my first bicycle. I remember every detail of it still. It was a beauty. It was a rally and had a three-speed gear arrangement so that I could switch into low gear when climbing a hill. This was great on the steep part of the Dublin Road whenever I was cycling home from school. When everyone else had to dismount and push their bikes up the hill, I could continue cycling. Now, instead of putting in her request to Aunt Mary Ann, my mammy would give me her shopping list and the appropriate money and send me to Dundalk, which was in the Free State. 
I'd cycle the six miles or so to the border, on the far side of which were Sweetie and other shops, where they knew nothing about rationing or coupons. I still remember every curve on that road. There was a plethora of shops greeting you as you entered that side of the dock, and after doing my mommy's shopping in the grocers, the butchers and the dairy shops, I naturally gravitated to the sweet shops to complete my own shopping. Before returning for home, I used to put the packed pound of butter down inside one of my knitted socks and the bag of tea inside my shirt. I remember well that in those days, the butter on our table in Neary often had the fine profile of my calf muscle. Though still in short trousers, I was never stopped by the customs men and they got to know me and would say hello as I cycled through their road barrier. Except the once, and that once was probably my last venture at smuggling. On that one day, there was a new customs man on duty I hadn't seen before. He waved at me to stop and asked what I had inside my stocking, as it was sort of obvious that there was something there. I showed him it, saying it was butter for my mommy. He was smiling and probably would have let me go. He seemed a nice man, but I had other ideas. I noticed just beside me, under the customs roofing, Mrs. John Henry Collins, a formidable but friendly neighbour from our Dublin road. She had just been cleared by the customs and was getting back into her car to drive off down the road to Newry. Abandoning my customs man, I ran across to her with a butter in my hand. As her car was moving off slowly, I pushed my pound of butter through her open window saying, Hello, Mrs. Collins. Would you ever please give this butter to my mammy? To her great and eternal credit, she grabbed the butter from my outstretched hand, pressed down on her accelerator and headed off down the road to Neary. To his credit, I think too, the customs man just threw his hands up in the air, turned his back on me and walked away back into his custom house and I cycled off down the road home. With the advent of Brexit, it now looks like the border between Neary and the dock may soon have a very unwelcome rebirth, and I sometimes wonder if I should establish a smuggling consultancy advisory firm. My expertise is unique, and the business should be good, especially if British Prime Minister Boris Johnson brings back the sweetie coupons. Man is the cheek been turned now, man is the fist unfolded. Man is the lesson taught and learned, man is the weight been shouldered long before you came to be, long before you came to be, long before you came to be, he here. So you learn to read and write, and you learn to tell the time, and then you learn to walk and you learn to talk, you learn to reason why, go at your ease boy, go do as you please, prove your point and say your piece, hold your temper, hold your tongue. It was a small but heavy glass candle holder in the shape of a star. I pushed it up against the prayer to St Peregrine Latiosi, patron saint of malignant growths, and I lit the candle. It wasn't my candle. In fact, I'd never lit that candle before that night. It was my mum's. She'd been diagnosed with cancer. I don't think I knew it was cancer at the start, but in 1989, no one said that word. She was sick for months. There was only the three of us, her and me and my dad. 
and Mum decided she wanted us to go on the diocesan pilgrimage to Lourdes in May. We weren't sure she'd be fit for it. And Mum said something quietly to me about last family holiday together, but I think I ignored that and kept on talking. And May came. I was doing my finals in university and it was decided I was better staying put and studying. So I didn't go. On the Thursday, I left Mum and Dad off at the car park where the coach was leaving from. Dad in his usual shirt and tie. Her in her brown velour tracky bottoms, her sick woman's trousers as we used to call them. And as the coach pulled out and headed for Dublin Airport, I went back to student life in Belfast. Meanwhile, they arrived safely in Lourdes and reported back that there was great colour in the town because of the huge numbers of uniformed soldiers and sailors from around the world on the international military pilgrimage, which happens at the same time. So they spent Friday down around the Basilica and the Grotto and sent a few postcards to family. On the Saturday, though, Mum took sick and by tea time she'd deteriorated. I came back down to Newry. Dad was on the phone. I'd never heard him crying before. And that's when I lit the candle. And I waited. And the phone rang again about half nine. And Dad said, she's not good. Drive up to Belfast and stay with your uncle tonight. Don't be on your own. And I thought, well, I'll leave the candle and I'll let it go out on its own. And then I was concerned that it would catch fire. So I lifted it and I put it in the sink. Still lit. And I grabbed some clothes upstairs, came back into the kitchen, and then I thought, oh, our neighbour's going to see this wee light flickering in the house. He'll know it's empty and he'll be worried. So I looked at the clock, blew out the candle, jumped in the car, and drove to Belfast. My uncle came out to his gate as soon as I got there and he hugged me and he said, She's gone. So I started making the calls. Family. Friends, arrangements, funeral, local undertaker. Sorry to hear about your mother. Where's the family plot then? I don't think there is one. The old graveyard maybe? Uh, I never heard any talk about it. Okay then, new graveyard, new plot. What size of plot do you want? A single or a family? Families for three, singles for one. Uh, can you have a double? No, you can only have three or one. Now I'm 20 at this stage. Um, I don't know, can't decide. What I'm trying to say to you, son, is are you thinking of living around the town yourself? I laughed to myself. It was decided that Mum's coffin would be sealed before it left Lourdes. So it was in arrivals in Dublin Airport where all those joyful Christmas reunions take place and Irish sporting heroes return to flashbulbs and cheers that I first saw my dad and he was just broken. We waked her in our house. People came whom I didn't know because she'd done something for them that they wanted to remember. And there was great comfort in that and happiness and laughter about things she'd done or things she'd said. All those rituals that we used to take for granted that eased and perfumed the process of death and grieving. But I never saw her. And that's hard. I still find that hard. And I've been thinking about this recently, as it's become a reality for so many people now. The last memory I have of my beautiful, kind and gentle mum is her getting on a coach 
in a car park in Uri, heading for Lourdes and not even looking back, thinking her own thoughts just on her own journey. The funeral came and went in a blur and all of a sudden we were two, me and my dad. Two people who rubbed each other up the wrong way at the best of times and couldn't speak about the unbearable loss that they'd both suffered. I felt like we were like a tricycle that had lost a wheel and a trike with two wheels is kind of unstable and unpredictable. Months later, a package came from France with the death certificate. And I went through it, cause of death, place of death, time of death, and I sat in our living room and I wondered, what was I doing when she died? 10.45pm. But of course we were an hour behind. And then I felt the hair stand on the back of my neck as I realised she'd passed away at 9.45 Irish time, precisely when I looked at the clock and blew the candle out. Her candle. There's an official framed group picture of them all with the Dromore pilgrimage and it's faded and yellow now. And you can see my dad squinting into the sunlight in front of the basilica and mum gazing off into the distance, just unaware of the photographer, in her own world. I'm told by people who were there that Saturday night that she'd heard the lured hymn drifting in through the hospital window from the candlelit procession and it was all very calm and very serene. And out of all the postcards that they sent to friends and family the day before she died, the only one that never arrived was mine. My Auntie Bridget was way before her time. Well, that's the way the priest at her funeral diplomatically put it. The fire alarm went off in the church after he said it and I know she was letting us know she agreed. Widowed young, after just two years of marriage, she returned to college, studying economics and social science, to become an early advocate for child mental health services. My busy mother... Rearing us and helping run a family business was the keeper of the keys to Bridget's house. It was furnished in the 1970s as if from a Scandinavian magazine with low-slung chairs that were crippling for creaky hips, according to Bridget's sisters. She'd abstract art hung on her walls and large picture frame windows that let light in and heat out. I loved every inch of her eclectic home. At home... Swinging my legs off a chair in our ordinary back kitchen, I'd hear the phone ring and my mother sigh as she took another call from Moscow, Dar es Salaam, Shanghai or wherever Bridget had landed with instructions to mind her house. The keys would, as ever, be under the flower pot at the front door. Auntie Bridget travelled light, 
Only bring quick drying, non-iron, polyester clothes anywhere, she told us. Anything else should fit in your handbag, including the element of a kettle, so you could make tea wherever you landed. She drove a Renault Reliant car at horrendous speed, the gear sticks sticking right up on the dashboard. Deaf in her left ear, she'd swivel her head around and turn her right ear towards the passenger, usually my poor terrified mother, to keep up an animated conversation while wildly bouncing off the verges of bog roads in Westmeath and Offaly. She brought home souvenir Tasmanian devils, Russian dolls, Amazonian figurines and rocks from Mount Sinai for me to treasure in my tiny Westmead bedroom and her conversations with me as a child were often age-inappropriate and always wonderfully interesting. She threw her thoughts like confetti over my head. How useless men in power could be when no women were represented. How descent had once been through the female line, inheritance passing from mother to daughter and most tantalisingly of all that we may have all once worshipped a mother goddess. Sark religious talk in our house after Sunday Mass. When I was older, I once brought a friend who I was in awe of home to visit. My friend told Bridget she was going to America to find herself. And who's funding this venture? Bridget asked. Oh, my dad, my friend said. Would it not be cheaper for your father? Bridget said, if you found yourself in Kerry. In her late 70s, Bridget had a hip replacement. It didn't put a stop to her travels, but it did mean she needed a walking stick afterwards, which inadvertently brought her a brief moment of unwanted fame. At the kitchen table one morning over 20 years ago, my mother burst out laughing as she spread the day's paper out on the table. There on the front page was a large photo of Auntie Bridget on O'Connell Street, smiling and waving her walking stick wildly in the air over her head, her hair piled high in a bun. In the background was the large, newly opened Anne Summer Shop, with various mannequin models in floaty red lingerie flanking Bridget in the shop window. The picture caption indicated that this elderly lady was vehemently protesting against sex shops on O'Connell Street. My mother, at first amused, was now perplexed. This was not Bridget's usual liberal stance. Bridget phoned that afternoon, just landed in Austria, and was half annoyed, half amused when my mother informed her about the picture. She had, she told us, been on the way to a matinee in the Gate Theatre. When, as she put it, a poor young lad from a newspaper holding a camera asked her if he could take a picture of her waving her stick in the air as he needed a picture of an older, active lady or he wouldn't get paid. She obliged, of course, totally unaware of the context her picture would be used in. Now, when I think of her, I like to think she coined the phrase fake news as she laughed down the phone line from Vienna to my mother standing in her Westmeath kitchen. She was indeed ahead of her time. On this morning's programme, we heard Goodbye to Renting by Shan Quill. Then Al Sewer by Oliver Sears. After that, we heard Crossing the Border by John Kelly. Then The Candle by John Toll. And finally, Fake News by Claire O'Reilly. This morning's music began with Our House by Crosby, Stills and Nash. Then Gracias a la Vida by Violetta Parra. After that, we heard Raise the Road by Keela. 
and then In Paradisum from Fores Requiem, sung by the choir of New College Oxford, conducted by Edward Higginbottom. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other arts and culture programmes, go to rte.ie forward slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.